Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number seven, I chatted with Catherine Boyle, a venture capitalist based in San Francisco and former journalist about escalating tensions between the media and tech industries, her paths to becoming a VC, and the threat that declining economic mobility poses to future generations. Catherine is a partner at General Catalyst, a bi-coastal venture capital firm where she leads investments in early stage companies with uncommon missions. She's invested in the likes of Andrel Industries, Nova Credit, Spring Discovery, and co-leads General Catalyst's seed platform. Prior to becoming an investor, she was a reporter at the Washington Post and is passionate about the future of media. This was a wide ranging and fun discussion and Catherine has an incredibly unique perspective coming to tech from the world of journalism. Hope you enjoyed this episode with Catherine Boyle. So thank you, Catherine, for taking the time to join me on the Paradox Podcast. It's an honor to have you. And I feel like everyone in Silicon Valley has a very unique story about how they got here. There's no sort of one standard path. Can you share a little bit about your backstory and how you ended up as a partner at a VC firm here in San Francisco? Yeah, so it's equal parts a bizarre story, but also a bit cliche because it starts with zero to one. But I promise it's not that basic. The book? Uh, The book, yes. Yes, of course. Everything starts with zero to one. But I never had any real interest in investing growing up. I was obsessed with political philosophy, foreign affairs, politics, and I moved to Washington to go to school and through a variety of twists and turns, studied political philosophy, got really excited to work in politics and ended up at the Washington Post. And working at the Washington Post was truly a dream job for me. I was writing for what's known as the style section. And a lot of people, when they hear style, they think of the New York Times fashion section or you know, kind of the frivolous sections at the ends of the paper. And the style section at the Washington Post is actually the premier feature section in America. It's one of the last enduring feature sections where they have a daily section devoted to long form journalism and kind of artful writing. And so it was sort of a a plum gig for someone starting out early in their 20s and was very excited to be a general assignment reporter. Then I covered museums and I actually ended my career in nonprofit investigations. So I would write, you know, these long form 5,000 word pieces into finances, but then I would also write a story about like Carol Burnett. So it was a a really, really interesting way to kind of learn about the world and, and practice the craft of writing and reporting. So this was a dream job, uh, except for the business model. So I was there during a very you know, precarious time right before Jeff Bezos bought the paper. And I had this one moment where my editor, who's always been a great mentor to me, uh, she took me to lunch at Cozy. And she said, Catherine, you are a great writer. You're a great reporter. But in about five years, you're going to price yourself out of this job. Mm. And you're young enough. 
you need to think about what you're going to do with your future. And I never really thought about my future. You know, I thought I was yeah. going to live and die as a reporter. And so it's funny, I, I actually went back and within a couple of days, I talked to a good friend at the Post. And she said, you know, my husband just left the Navy and he's going to business school at Stanford. Maybe you should apply there. Hmm. And that was another thing I had never really thought about business school. I mm -hmm. actually didn't know that people who didn't have business backgrounds could apply to business school. Right. So I did that and was very, very fortunate to be one of the two reporters in my class who was able to get in. And that changed everything because I, I came out to Silicon Valley. I was very deeply interested in technology and what was happening particularly around media. That was sort of an obsession being at the Post. Uh, and so I was able to come out to, to business school and did something else that was you know pretty surprising. But I, I discovered zero to one. And didn't really know much about venture capital, didn't know much about Peter Thiel. So I emailed him, not knowing how busy this person would the be. The famous cold email. Yes, the, the, famous, <laughs> the famous emails that, that sometimes get answered. And I'll, I will say, he didn't answer the email, but he forwarded it to Trey Stevens, who's been on your podcast. Yeah. And so Trey was kind enough to take a call with me. And him being the only venture capitalist that I knew, I just kept on emailing and calling him and calling him. And he kind of- With that reporter persistence yeah, well, that well, had served you well in, yeah, the, in the previous no, it, role. It, it, I think it did, but I also was just, you know, desperate to learn more and and kind of begged for an internship at Founders Fund. And he repeatedly said, no, uh, we have no idea what we're going to do with you. Like, what what would we do? We don't have interns. But he was he was kind enough to, to let me join. And that seven months of interning while I was in business school at Founders Fund was truly transformational because, you know, as someone who was a true outsider to Silicon Valley, uh, outsider to finance, to, to venture capital, it was just a you know, immersion into this world. And I think that was when I decided I had to be a venture capitalist for the rest of my That's life. That's awesome. So, well, yeah, what a, what a place to start. And yeah. what, a, what an interesting and eclectic group of thinkers, yeah. too. After that, I mean, leaving there and going to, to GC, you know, I, I talked to 47 different firms. And I think mm -hmm. this is really important for people who want to get into venture. All families are different. And one of the things that I was really looking for was someone who would take someone with a different background. And what I loved about GC um, is that no one asked me about being a former reporter. No one asked me about, you know, you have no credentials. Why should you be here? Mm -hmm. And the level of questioning and diversity of thought that I met in that process was just extraordinary. So I've just, I was so lucky to be able to join as an associate out of business school and I've been there ever since. That's awesome. And we're going to dive more into that a little bit later, but I want to kind of take a step back just to give our audience context on kind of how you ended up a journalist, um, then going to business school, then uh, getting into venture capital. Can you share a story from your childhood that maybe strongly influenced who you are today? Yeah, you know, so it's it's funny because I've been thinking a lot about childhood recently because this uh, article came out in The Atlantic by David Brooks about the nuclear family. And I believe it's titled, uh, The Nuclear Family is a Mistake or Was a Mistake. And what's interesting is the whole piece is about how these families of four that, you know, don't live near grandparents, that don't have cousins nearby, where help kind of is outsourced to, to nannies and to, you know, to different sports teams and where people really don't grow up around family was not good for society. And it kind of struck a chord with me because I had the opposite relationship with my family. I had what he calls a corporate family, which is just a house full of brothers, sisters, aunts, cousins, grandparents. I had dinner with my grandparents every night growing up and being the youngest of many children I was constantly surrounded by love and attention and debate and noise and I think that was a really peculiar way to to grow up to have sort of this corporate family my parents worked together we went to to work with them where you were just constantly surrounded by family um, and never really felt like you were you were missing anything because of that 
Um, so that was unique about my childhood. The other weird thing about my childhood was my dad was almost a Jesuit priest. He was in the seminary for 10 years. And so I grew up with this very platonic parenting style where everything I said was questioned. And it was a very frustrating way to grow up. <laughs> but it, I think it, it kind of cultivated this weird contrarian streak in me, which was not you know fashionable when I was a kid. But it was definitely a different way to, to grow up. You have an incredibly unique perspective as someone who worked in media, you were a reporter for the Washington Post, and then switched into the world of tech, now as a, a partner at a, a VC firm, which I think is quite rare. I'm sure there's a handful, uh, maybe a small cohort of VCs that are former reporters. Can you talk about the similarities and also the differences between these two groups with your unique lens into this world? Yeah, I mean, there's a, there's a ton of similarities. I, I often joke that everything looks exactly the same, except in VC, you write a check, and you know when you're at the Post, you write a story, but they're pretty similar jobs up until you make the investment. But there's some key differences that, that make it very different. So everything up, up until is very much, even the language is very similar. So you, know, you source things as journalists, you have sources, you do diligence, you're constantly taking meetings, you have those 30 people on a Rolodex rotation where you're constantly you calling pitches them. pitches too, right? You'll pitch like you the can, editorial board and Exactly, stuff and, yeah. So yeah. It's, it's very similar. You're looking for the narrative, you're looking for a different narrative, a contrarian narrative yep. that other people haven't seen. You're trying to get there first. But the biggest difference is actually, I think the mindset. So when you're a reporter, you're really living in the present past. You're constantly looking for facts, for clues, and you're not really thinking about where the future is necessarily headed. And I think the, the present future context was the biggest thing for me, where you're looking 10 years ahead as a venture capitalist thinking, how is the future going to develop? You're still anchored in the present. I think the, a big mistake that investors can make is when they anchor too much in the future and then mm -hmm. you know the timing doesn't work out. But the present future is sort of how you live your life. Mm -hmm. And that affects sort of whether you're an optimist or not. That's another difference that I, I, I noticed in, in venture is that you know, you're, you're incentivized to be optimistic. Um, and, and that's how you know the entire world works. You have to think about, you know, what will happen if this is true. Right. What, and what could go right in this situation, right. this investment, One, this company? 100%. Yeah. And I think the skepticism element of reporting is actually ingrained in the culture. Even when you look at old newsrooms by the 50s and 60s, they were dominated by immigrants. They were dominated by people who were on mm. the margins of society. And they were very skeptical of power because yeah. of that. Probably because of where they came from, too, where power was often abused. Absolutely. Right? So, so and I I think that's changed. I mean, there's been a, a huge change of, you know, the people who go into journalism now versus what it used to look like. You didn't used to have a college degree. It used to be very much a vocational trade. But that sort of speak truth to power is, mm -hmm. is very much ingrained in journalism and I think always will be. Those would be, I think, the big differences. But there's also a difference um, that journalists tend to really focus on the margin of certainty in a way that venture capitalists don't. And and this is where I actually get a lot of pushback from people who say like there's so much wrong in the media right now. Like what are you talking about? Like there are like they're not focused on facts and I I actually disagree with that. When you're a journalist, you have to be 90% right. If you listen to Catch and Kill podcast by Ronan Farrow, or if you've read some of the books about how things are reported, there's so much that goes into, are we getting this exact word right? Are yeah. we, are, you know, the, the margin of certainty has to be correct. And if, you know, you do 20 mm. big stories yeah. and it looks more like a venture capital portfolio where, you know, maybe half fail and yeah. some are okay and like one is good, that's not good enough. Yeah. I mean, then, then really the narrative that we sometimes hear around media doing fake news or not doing their job properly, mm -hmm. that would strengthen that narrative. Narrative. And so to your point, it sounds like you think they're almost over-indexing on the other side of really trying to be super certain yeah. about each and everything. And, and I think like training your mind to be somewhat certain 
in venture is actually mm -hmm. a very difficult thing when mm -hmm. you've been so focused on trying to, to get the facts right. Um, but I know we'll have some debate on that because I think a, a lot of my friends in venture would disagree and my founder friends would disagree that journalists have been focused on facts. I also think this framing around present, past, and present future is really interesting. Obviously, if you're thinking about the present future and you're looking at kind of five, 10, 20 year time horizons, it makes sense that you might have a more positive sum, optimistic outlook. Mm -hmm. If you're looking at the present and also sort of the recent past and, and maybe even the undercurrents through history that led us to these various moments in time as a journalist, I could see sort of more of a zero-sum mentality to how you see the world. Yeah. I don't really blame anybody for holding that. I sort of think of police officers, for example, who go out there and they tend to interact with maybe some of the more dangerous or some of the more rough elements of society. And I could mm. see that that could totally shift your perspective on life. Yeah. It's very hard to like come home and not bring that with you. Yeah. So do you think that's an accurate sort of recap of, of kind of what you're talking about with this dynamic of more zero sum versus more positive sum? Yeah. And I think I used to joke, and, and this is you know, part of the reason why I, <laughs> part of the reason why I left journalism was because I think there were a lot of trends happening in the business side I didn't agree with. But the other reason was I was actually hungry. Journalists are so poorly paid. And, you know, I certainly was. And I used to joke that part of the reason why I was so skeptical of authority and skeptical of people who were who were doing well was because, you know, I'm, I'm actually like struggling here. And and I do think that that leads people and it certainly led me to, you know, question things more, which is what you want in journalists. You actually want people to, to look at the halls of power and really try to dig into what's going on there. But I think you're also incentivized for the big scoop. And you're, you know, the, the things that matter. And, you know, when I was there, it was like people, people, I, I was personally focused less on, okay, how do I get Twitter followers? I was focused on how do in 10 years, do I find the big story that's going to get me a Pulitzer? And, you know, you're not going to get a Pulitzer for writing a puff piece about how great someone is or, or right. writing a feature story. I mean, sometimes you can, but like, you know, you're going to get a Pulitzer for doing a hard charging investigation into someone who's abusing authority. And we need that. Like, as much as I criticize where the media is headed, we need yeah. institutions oh, that are looking into it. And, and, you know, I think we need these these you know, legacy institutions as well, even yeah. if they are having their own problems. But I think it's good. It's it's good for a journalist to be skeptical of authority. And sometimes oh, I totally. think tech gets that part a little bit wrong. Oh, I, I totally agree with that. So it seems like the battle between media and tech has really started to ratchet up even just within the last week. Hmm. I think in particular for folks that may not have been following this or maybe listening to this podcast at a later time, there was sort of this back and forth on Twitter between Balaji Srinivasan and some reporters at Vox Recode that were doing a story on the coronavirus. And I'll recap it, but keep me honest, on my recap, I think the gist of it was that Balaji had been doing some really excellent citizen journalism on coronavirus. He's been and great. Yeah. He's got some background in this. Literally, he's probably been my primary source for kind of tracking what's happening with coronavirus. And I think he was interviewed or asked to, to interview with a reporter for a story. And he expressed some concerns up front about how the narrative of that story might get twisted mm -hmm. in a way that would undermine the true severity of the coronavirus and maybe yeah. make it more of like a cultural Silicon Valley thing. He even tweeted about it. So he's got kind of the receipts. And then I think six days later, the story drops and yeah. it sort of confirms, in his perspective, it confirms his fear that things would get spun. What's your take on what's going on here with this ratcheted up warfare between these two sides. Yeah, yeah. So I think I'll talk a little bit about the the history of why I think this is happening first, because a lot of people, you know, coming to this narrative are saying, wow, like tech versus the media. Why? Why the animosity? And it's like, gosh, this is a 30 year trend. Mm -hmm. So 
this has been happening for a very long time because of something called the Fairness Doctrine, which was the FCC used to say until 1987, that if you were covering a controversial subject and you were a news agency, you had to present both sides. Mm -hmm. And this was revoked in 1987, which it, it became a, a, you know, kind of a huge issue on politics because it led to the Rush Limbaugh's of the world. He was actually the kind of, you know, first mover when this was revoked mm. in terms of talk radio. And then you had across America, a lot of talk radio hosts that were emulating Rush Limbaugh and, and sort of, you know, speaking about news in a way that was not in line with sort of the traditional news we used to see decades ago, which was yep. here's one side thinking of it, here's the other side. And so this has been controversial in politics for a very long time. And it was finally like fully revoked um, and, and taken off the books um, and actually was under the Obama administration. And it was really important because this is actually what gave way to a news media that is allowed to operate through social media, allowing different perspectives and multitudes of perspectives. Mm -hmm. And so what's interesting is you're seeing this 30 year devolution of centralized media. And one is because of policy, but also it's because of the distribution networks changing. I mean, the, the syndicators used to be the newspapers themselves, and now it's yeah. Facebook. And so where I think the news media has sort of self-immolated in a way is that they, they made a wrong choice in taking to Twitter and weakening the institution from the inside. I think the biggest problem and the reason why there's such a lack of trust in media and why you have these disputes between Balaji and Vox is because great reporters decided that they could increase their own distribution by getting a following on Twitter by being personalities. And you used to see it, like when I was there, I never used Twitter at the Washington Post because I was terrified that it would undermine my story. Right. But if you were on the flip side of that argument, your story could get so much more leverage if you could be clever, if you could be fun, if you could get people engaged in the conversation. And over the last 10 years, we've seen people go that way. Mm -hmm. And people have become so famous. And in the case of Vox, for example, the, the entity we're talking about, you know, that was Ezra Klein deciding that he was going to have a personality-driven media publication. And yes, it was going to be news, but Ezra was always a commentator. Yeah. Like He was never actually a reporter. He always started out in the blogs. And so what I think is really interesting, and this is where I'm, I'm somewhat critical of reporters who don't see the differentiation between the Washington Post, the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, where you still have investigative reporters mm -hmm. who take it very seriously, who are not active on Twitter, who are practicing the craft in an old school way. And probably suffering for it maybe financially, or, or at least there's a trade-off. There's a real trade-off between doing that and then building your own following, being more of an advocate, being more of a personality, right? We're kind yeah. of everybody's a Rush Limbaugh across, of course, various components of the, the political spectrum. But. Absolutely. And I, that's where I think a lot of people have made a choice to do the opposite. And those same people then say, well, why aren't you trusting our journalism? We just put out a story, but yeah. it's under the banner of Vox and Recode, which is Kara Swisher and Ezra Klein. And what I think we've forgotten is that the power of journalists was always that they were protected by the institution. I, I often tell people this, but the biggest shock to me coming to Silicon Valley was that people would always answer my email as a reporter at the mm. Washington Post, not because I was Catherine, but because I worked at the Washington Post. Yeah. When I lost the power of that institution, I had no power except my own. And so what we're seeing is this trend from institutions to individual personalities. But then the backlash that I think people are surprised about is that if you're just a personality, you have no protection. You, ha you don't get to say that, you know, 
oh, but we're unbiased. We're reporters. Yeah. No, you're a personality now. And so, you know, I, I, I think another indication of this is Joe Rogan. You know, when you see the Sanders campaign saying that the, the endorsement from Joe Rogan is more important than the endorsement from the New York Times op-ed page, that's proof that we've moved to this personality-driven journalism and that it actually you know, matters more in politics in some ways. And so that, I think, is the trend driving this. And sure. so, you know, Balaji is going to come after a reporter, particularly if that reporter works for uh, a personality-driven institution. Yeah, it seems like we're in this deleveraging phase on institutions. Distrust in institutions is an all-time high. And it's a bit of a chicken or the egg thing. It's like, did this transition that took place over 30 years cause people to lose trust in the institutions? Or has trust declining in the institutions also pushed journalism to change into mm -hmm. something uh, you know, opponents would call it clickbait journalism or reporters taking to Twitter to build their own following and dunk on each other and all of that. It's hard to know. Maybe it's a little bit of both, mm -hmm. kind of the causation correlation thing. So that's definitely fascinating. The other thing is it does feel like individuals, rightly or wrongly, are trying to step into that void that these crumbling institutions are leaving behind. Mm -hmm. And it seems like some are doing that more successfully and some are doing it less successfully. I think the optimistic take here would be we might be entering a phase where citizen journalists like Balaji and others really kind of take that mantle of, of not so much being advocates, but really trying to find the truth, at least mm -hmm. attempting to. Do you think we're sort of in this phase where citizen journalism's kind of on the rise? And a related question, do you think we're also in this phase where really public private sector business figures mm -hmm. are going to start responding to journalism they don't like? I think the most prominent example maybe within the last year, or maybe the end of last year, was when FedEx CEO Fred Smith, he challenged the New York Times to a debate after they wrote probably what he perceived was a hit piece on his company, mm -hmm. which, I mean, that, that kind of sent shockwaves across the Twitter sphere and certainly the world of, of media. But what's your yeah. opinion on a, what's happening there? Well, it's interesting because we're talking about this in the U.S. context. And what I love about the Balaji story is that he is somewhat railing against the Chinese press. Or, yeah. or lack thereof. I mean, mm -hmm. one of the things that he's pointing out is that, you know, a lot of the misinformation that's happening or the reason why you need to be a citizen journalist when you're talking about coronavirus is because there's a lot of misinformation coming from the state. And, you know, I think the citizen journalism that we've seen globally over the last decade because of Twitter has been extraordinary and necessary, particularly in places that don't have a First Amendment. The shock that we're seeing now, and to your point about, you know, the, you know, CEOs kind of fighting back, I think that's surprising to institutions because they've always held so much power. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, I think we'll definitely see more of that. But I want to actually say that, you know, as a former journalist, I think you know, this is a weird thing to say in some ways, but I actually do think we are entering another golden age of journalism. People always talked about kind of the advertising era where journalists could do these incredible stories in a centralized fashion. I think what we're seeing now is that a multitude of voices are going to be constantly debating in a public sphere. And that's going to lead people to make their own decisions. We already have to question everything. And that's a good thing. Yeah. Like, that's not a bad thing. And, and you know, I, I think we're focusing sometimes on the negative portions of this, that people might be too trusting of different sources. They might fall for you know, deep fakes and, and other types of media that might be propaganda. And that, that is a bad you know, symptom of what's happening. But the good portion of this is that people who have different perspectives can finally amass a following, be out in a public forum, and then debate publicly. And I think that that is an extraordinary thing that happens when when the rails are sort of opened up and the distribution is open to anyone with a voice. That's a really interesting and potentially contrarian perspective, but I like it because 
it could be that a lot of what we're seeing here, we're just kind of in this transitional phase mm -hmm. where the old world of media is sort of coming to grips with the realities of business model challenges, changing distribution channels, the rise of individuals, and, and the fact that literally any American citizen and citizens all over the world can be journalists mm -hmm. as long as they have access to the internet and have access to the right technology. And I wonder if this next phase that we enter is a, just a place where there are more voices. Yeah. And hopefully the institutions that remain after we go through this transitional phase, maybe they get back to their roots or the unique value they can provide to the ecosystem. Yeah. And we don't want the New York Times and the Washington Post and um, the Wall Street Journal to disappear. We want those voices in the mix for sure. Yes. We want those true journalists, like the immigrant yeah. journalists that were really skeptical of power, we want that to remain, but we want to add more voices, having yeah. more voices in the conversation, having citizen journalists, having even non-journalists that are still contributing to the overall conversation will make us better. But it requires a couple of things. It requires trusting your fellow citizen to have the conversation, which I think given the political environment that we're in, People don't trust other people to be able to make decisions or to discern fact from fiction or to uh, spot fake news or deep fakes or any of that. So it requires some of that. And then it just requires some level of tolerance around actually having discussions where you disagree with someone else. 100%. Uh, and I think that that's sort of the societal layer of this that is also not quite working. Mm -hmm. And if we could get all of these things to work, I, I totally believe that we could theoretically enter a golden age of journalism. I just think we're going through it's potentially its darkest before the dawn. Yeah, no, and it, it, it's, I'm, you know, it's, it's, it's jarring. And, you know, I, I definitely am an institutionalist. Like I want to see the Washington Post and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal succeed. And, and they are succeeding. I mean, if you look at the New York Times, it, it has made the transition incredibly well. Jeff Bezos has done a great job. You know, I, I left right as he bought the paper. It was a dark, dark time. And I think he's done a great job of beefing up the newsroom. And, you know, I would like to see those institutions really focus on what it means to be a journalist and do more investigations and really look at the seats of power and not do the hot takes. Yeah. Like leave that for, you know, people sparring on Twitter. Yeah. One final question, then we'll, we'll kind of move on to some other stuff. How, as a society, maybe more prescriptively, can we work to de-escalate some of this tension? I mean, it's not just tech versus media. It's the political warfare we have going on. It's, I think, general heightened tensions across the culture. What are a couple things, one or two things that we could do to de-escalate as opposed to just keep ratcheting up the tension? I haven't fully thought about this question. And, and I mean, it's one where I don't have a full answer, I should say. But I do think the form factor is part of the problem. So I love Twitter. I think it's, you know, a great form for voices. But at the same time, it, you know, it, it does sort of have this kind of lack of nuance that I think leads to some of the, you know, outrage goes further. Yeah. And podcasting is a great example of where nuance actually matters. You know, like you're going to get into some nuanced conversations in an hour and a half discussion. And and so I think the form factor and, and what we've realized from podcasting is that, yeah, people want 140 character tweets, but they also can listen to a three hour podcast about mm -hmm. a nuanced topic where, where people are debating. And so I do think there are sort of these glimmers of hope where people actually do want nuance back in their in their journalism. They want nuance back in their conversations with others. And so I I feel optimistic that that's the trend that's happening, yeah. that we that we're at least coming out of this issue where there is, you know, kind of heightened mistrust as a society of, of the other. But it's hard. I mean, there's so many reasons why it's happening and kind of finding the solutions is, is not just a, you know, a kind of a silver bullet. I think these channels have different incentive structures. And I think a lot of the behavior, which could be destructive, 
follows that. Obviously, on Twitter, I don't even need to explain what I, <laughs> what I mean in that case. But the positive thing is, is podcasting is a great thing to mention because I think we're still very early on the trend of podcasting becoming huge. It seems like the narrative is that, you know, Americans' attention spans are shortening. You know, we can only watch these six-second clips and we're all scrolling through our feeds and we're just little dopamine addicts on our phones. And the counter part to that narrative is that you have the rise of, like you mentioned, two, three-hour conversations, like Mm -hmm. Joe Rogan's podcast, podcasting in general. So it proves that, yes, Americans like snackable tweet-size, Facebook-size posts because they're busy. They have Mm -hmm. real lives. They're not caught up in the latest story. They can't go deep on all of these stories. It's impossible. It's possible even for journalists to go deep on all these stories. They have to pick sort of a vertical. But I'm optimistic in the sense that the rise of long-form podcasting demonstrates that people do have the ability and the desire to jump into nuance. And there's a real market for it. 100%. And hopefully business models that rise up around it too. What's what's amazing and what we forget is that narrative and storytelling in particular has always morphed to fit new technologies. You know, serial journalism that happened on radio and, and moving on to appointment television, moving on to, you know, short tweets of, you know, that, that sort of became the hallmark of, of, you know, the last decade. But there's so many different forums that give way to new storytelling. And humans have always found different ways to tell stories and, and to, to tell news and share news. So I, I think we're always going to see it morphing based on the technologies that arise. Definitely. Switching gears to the investing front, it's sort of said in the Valley that great investments are both non-consensus and right. What are some unique things about your worldview that allow you to look at the world and potential investments differently than other investors? Yeah, so I focus a lot on deep tech, frontier technology, and frontier technology defined very specifically as, um, I I always say there's two types of frontier technology, and we call it like Oculus versus SpaceX. Mm. Oculus was trying to build a new technology and find a market. SpaceX had a market on the other end of severe regulation, and if it could just get through the regulatory moat, it would be able to to access that massive, massive market. And in some ways, I think the, the SpaceXs of the world are an order of magnitude bigger than the emerging technologies that are trying to time the market. And so I focus on the, the SpaceXs of the world, the Andorals of the world, where, where the market already exists and there's just a lot of regulation in the front end. But what's interesting is I also, I, I, you know, I'm open to, to different types of, of companies and sectors. I, I'd say like, you know, there's, there's people who only focus on a sector. I'm not very sector specific. I'm constantly finding new narratives that I mm-hmm. think are intriguing. And I'd say that the biggest thing that I focus on is, is narrative protagonist fit. I, I'm an early stage investor. I like to invest sometimes pre-product, sometimes pre-revenue, mm-hmm. um, and I'm really looking for for a certain type of founder. Who, and I think there's multiple ways to found a company. You can found great companies through whiteboarding. You can found great companies through business school, looking for different you know different types of markets. But I really like the founder who says, "In ten years, the future will be X," mm-hmm. and I have this theory of the future, and I'm going to build towards that. I don't necessarily like the companies, and I, it, you know you can have great companies this way, but but companies that iterate, 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 and try to find product market fit. So for me, the the most important thing is, does the founder, when they come in and speak to me, have a clear theory of where the future is headed? And it doesn't really matter what that future looks like or what sector it falls into Mm -hmm. me because founders are so much better than I will ever be at at determining the future. But I'm really focused on how they came to those assumptions, why they believe what they believe, and and how they think they're going to get there. Yeah. I think being people-driven versus 
thesis driven to me seems like the more logical path because the world is so complex it's infinitely complex and having some sort of mapping of of how you think things are going to unfold across multiple dimensions seems very difficult yeah but there's so um, many i mean so even at gc there's so many different ways that we invest you yeah. know there's there's definitely my, some of my colleagues have very strong theses yeah. uh, hey is spending a lot of time in healthcare and has a very strong thesis of which way it's going to go and i, I sometimes think uh because he was a company builder and a founder before he came mm. to venture you know that that's that's his methodology and he's very successful at it whereas other people say i will never ever have a thesis because I just want to focus on the founder or I just want to be there when the market turns and, and maybe I'm just focused on is it a big market and have I found the right person who can insert themselves into that market. So I think there's a lot of great ways to be an investor, but the most important thing, particularly for, for young people who want to be investors, is to find your strategy yeah. and to, to stick to it and to make sure it's the right strategy Because you need enough you. data, enough end to actually see if the strategy pans out. And maybe the connective tissue between those two different things would be vision. Mm -hmm. It's just where the vision's coming from. I think that looking for founders that have incredible vision or having a vision yourself because maybe you were once a founder and you have mm -hmm. deep insights into a space. The common thread there is is vision. And I think it kind of touches on this debate, which I think has been going on for, I don't know, 10 plus years, 15 years in the Valley over the nature of product market fit. And you just touched on it in your mm -hmm. last answer about whether it's something you kind of iterate into or you stumble into or you test into, mm -hmm. or it's something, uh, Keith Raboy from Now Founders Fund had a great tweet about the fact that he said, I don't believe product market fit's discovered. I believe that it's forged. Mm -hmm. And that implies that a, a founder with vision mm -hmm. about what the future is gonna look like yeah. is actually gonna lay out a plan to to change what that future looks like. Yeah. And the market will either conform to that or mm -hmm. not. And I definitely lean more in that direction. I think when Steve Jobs delivered the iPhone in 2007, mm -hmm. if you'd ask people in 2006 what they needed, they probably had a laundry list of things they wanted to do on their non-smartphones. Yeah. But it's sort of like this futuristic thing from 10 years in the future just got beamed down mm -hmm. out of the secrecy of Apple's headquarters in Cupertino. <laughs> that's and so that, I mean, that's sort of the, the quintessential example of forging product market fit. I mean, yeah. and obviously the iPhone had that in, in spades. So yeah. it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about. You've invested in some awesome companies like Anduril, uh, Nova Credit more recently. What is it about those founders or those companies that stood out to you sort of specifically? Well, one, I mean, both both Nova and Anduril are, you know, these teleological companies. Like, they had a vision of what the future was going to look like, and they forged a path, if you will. But there's a couple other things that I, I really like about them, because I think they are good examples of the types of founders and, and companies that we really like to work with at GC. One, they, they were reluctant founders. And I really appreciated this. And I know you've, you've had Trey on the podcast, but... He spent years looking for a company like Anduril yeah. as an investor. And when he couldn't find one, he reluctantly decided he was going to, to build this company with Palmer and, and Brian and Matt and Joe. And, you know, to me, those are the types of founders that that really, you know, it's like they put a lot of thought into this thing that is wrong with the future. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the easiest path would be finding someone else who's doing it and supporting them or joining a company. And when they don't find it, saying, okay, I'm going to take this big burden of, of building a company onto myself, 
I like those types of founders yeah. because I think they're very mindful of what they have to do. They're very mission driven. In both these cases, these are important missions. You know, Andrel is a, a next generation defense contractor. Mm -hmm. Nova Credit is a cross border uh, credit reporting agency that supports immigrants when they move country to country to find access to financial goods mm -hmm. and services. And you know, these are important missions and things that really have a personal impact on the people who are founding them and, and, yeah. and on their consumer. So I love that you know they have very strong missions and because they're so strong they're sort of these n of one companies you don't see many me too companies in yeah. these spaces because these are hard missions to you know articulate and and to build that's another thing that that i think is is you know part of a, a almost like a business hack is if you have a clear authentic differentiated mission you will be able to recruit people so much easier than, totally. than companies that don't. And so... Just like you'll be able to recruit customers ultimately easier. One, there's just yes. there's a direct correlation or a direct relationship between how good the mission is and how well you can recruit mm -hmm. and how great the product is and how good you can recruit customers. So it's sort of like the internal external mirror 100%. of the same phenomenon. Yeah. So so I'd say that's the kind of common thread of the, the founders I support is they have this very strong you know, telos of where yeah. they're going. The narrative is very clear. They might not know how they're going to get there, but they're quick learners and they're going to, you know, figure it out as they go. And I think that's just, uh, you know, that's something that we that we really look for in, in founders. One thing you said really stuck with me, there's something about the reluctant founder that's very fascinating because it's sort of like they want something to exist in the world and they want the world to change in a particular trajectory. And they don't care if they personally do it. So yeah. it's not about necessarily any financial upside for them. It's more like they have a really strong perspective on the world. This is sort of diametrically opposed probably to the whiteboard founder. Again, not to not to bash whiteboard founders. But that to me seems like a really interesting sign that, that you could be a really great founder. And to really draw a strange political analogy, but I know you're a fan of political science, and <laughs> yeah. philosophy and history like myself. Yeah. So I, I feel free to go here. You even look at like presidents that the United States has had. Our first president was incredibly reluctant. George Washington did not mm -hmm. want to be president. He, yeah. I think he felt the weight mm -hmm. of doing it, just much like a founder might feel the weight of starting a company. I certainly, the prospect of starting a company to me is sort of mind blowing, having seen other founders do it and worked for them. So you have someone like George Washington who, yeah, didn't really want the job and realized he was going to set precedent for all future presidents that would come after him. And then not to name any names, but you have people now running for president, which God bless them. I wouldn't want to run for president. I don't know who could get through it. It's a brutal yeah. process. Yeah. But really, really wanting to be president mm -hmm. is sort of a scary thought to me Absolutely. to elect someone like that. Yeah. So maybe maybe there's something to the reluctant founder. Well, I mean, I like the analogy. I mean, I think everyone always says the U.S. is the greatest startup. But like, yeah. it, is a, it is a heroic thing to build something from nothing and to devote decades. I mean, you're, you're getting into a role where if things go right, it will be incredibly brutal, incredibly hard, and it will be decades of your life. Yeah. And so I think that's what a lot of people miss about founding a company is that it's, it is a difficult thing. It's yeah. a heroic thing. And, and, you know, I have so much admiration for founders because I know I could never do it. And I'm very upfront about that. I, I am not the person to lead a company. I am very much better in the support role, the sparring role, helping people realize their potential and their missions. But like, I could never do it. And and the people who I think just are extraordinary founders realize the enormity of what they're doing totally. and the sacrifices they're going to have to make. And, you know, they they go into it with eyes wide open and, and anyone who's thinking about the enormity of what they're doing would be reluctant. Yeah. 
And to synthesize with our, our previous discussion around media and tech, I mean, maybe that's an area of empathy that should exist between founders and reporters is there's a grueling sort of uh, nature to chasing down that story, to building a company. There's also like a loneliness to it. Yes. I mean, like CEOs are very, very lonely. Yeah. And it would be kind of nice if some of the reporters of the world and the, the founders of the world could just get together for a beer and like empathize over that. I'm willing like, to host that discussion. Okay, because I actually, I actually think there is there is a lot of similarity in terms of just the feeling like the underdog. And of course, there's yeah. something that flips when you become a public company or you become a very successful company. And I think, you know, that's a mindset shift that, that you know, if you're fortunate enough to go through it, it's great. But the underdog mentality when you were starting a company is very similar to the underdog mentality of, you know, reporters yeah. really trying to, to speak truth to power. So I think there's a lot of similarities. I am more than happy to host that discussion. Yeah, no, someone, people, someone needs to. It's like a peace, want to get together. It's like I a am, Camp David uh, peace yes. accord. <laughs> Um, staying on this thread with Silicon Valley, what do you think is the future of Silicon Valley, both as a place and a, a mentality, a philosophy? Do you think it will remain, I mean, I guess since 2007, really, it's been very centralized in San Francisco. Do you think it will become decentralized or how do you think it plays out over the next five to 10 years? You know, it's, I think we're going to see a bifurcation. Like we're already seeing, you know, great companies emerge all over the country. I think this is a wonderful trend and, and we're going to see multiple hubs, you know, Provo, Columbus, uh, New York, LA, like there's great companies everywhere. Yeah. And I think we're going to see more ecosystems evolve. And that's a good thing. I think it's good for Silicon Valley too. It's, it's great for Silicon Valley. But I also think Silicon Valley is not just a place and too many people refer to it as a place. It's an ethos. Totally. Like, there's no reason why I, sh like I had no business being in venture capital. I'm very well aware of that. And the number of people who said yes to meetings, who answered cold emails, people who really shouldn't have. There is a culture of people who want to learn should be embraced. Mm -hmm. People who are different should be embraced. Sometimes, you know, I, I think there's a view that, that it's really hard to break into Silicon Valley, and it is. It's, you know, it took hundreds of emails for me to, to find a job. It often takes hundreds of, you know, cold calls to kind of break in. But at the same time, there's opportunity if you are an outsider. And I think that is true of, of you know, people who come here looking to, to make mentors, to make friends, to find teams. It is one of the few places right now where you can go and not be inhibited by where you went to school, what your parents did for a living, you know, whether your technical event, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think those are things that that I really value about this ecosystem. And yes, it has a lot of faults. Yeah, for um, sure. And, and, and it's been written about what those faults are. But I do think that it is a special place. And I hope that the culture continues. And yeah. It doesn't become this entrenched, you know, culture where you can't succeed if you're an outsider. I totally. think it will always embrace outsiders. Yeah, there's a very special pay it forward mentality that's kind of built into everything that happens, whether it's introducing some someone to an investor or whether it's just meeting someone for coffee and giving them advice about their startup or anything like that. It really is special. And I think it's very easy with all the media around it and even shows like HBO Silicon Valley to kind of just gloss over that and make fun of it. Mm -hmm. But that's why that mentality has been unique. There's no reason why. And I think it is getting exported to, to Provo and Boulder and Austin. And I think that's yeah. fantastic. It sort of diversifies across the country and across the world. Cool. So the last sort of bit of the podcast here, these are questions that we ask every guest. And I think the idea is that you can take it really in any direction that you want because they're so broad. Yeah. And I guess the first one will be one that going back to zero one and Peter Thiel and all that, that I think you've hopefully been asked before. But what is something that you believe that most people don't? It's kind of that famous Peter Thiel interview question. Yeah. Yeah. No, it, it's, riff it's on it. you know, one thing I believe, and I, I think I've 
I've really doubled down on this from just my, my work in investing is that diversity is a hedge, it doesn't compound. And when I say diversity, I'm not talking about diversity of ideas or peoples or identities, because all of those are incredibly necessary in life and, and, and a net good. But I'm talking about sort of this diversification strategy that I think has permeated a lot of people's lives. You know, my, my mother is one of the, the wisest people I know. And she always used to tell me, you know, Catherine, you only need one friend. You need, you know, one, one partner in life. You need one career. You only need one thesis. You, you only need one thing. And I think people are, are told that they should be experimenting in life, that they should try multiple things, that they should change careers if they're unhappy, that the key to success is constant movement, constant changing things up. And I just very much disagree with that because yeah. I think one of the biggest mistakes that people make is they do not give themselves enough time to allow their experiences and the people in their life to compound. Mm -hmm. And so I think we know that. I mean, even investing teaches yeah. us this. You know, if you invest more in your best companies. One great company is worth more than a thousand maybes, mm -hmm. and you should let that compound. But I think there's sort of this view that diversifying life, diversifying interests and hobbies and experiences is going to lead to a fruitful life. And I don't know that I believe that. Yeah. I, I very much believe that you know, doubling down early in life, knowing what you believe, standing for something, and letting those ideals compound is, a, at least for me, a core a core way to achieve happiness and, and to really kind of experience life to the fullest. I've noticed, maybe this is a cultural thing here, but it probably is more ubiquitous than that. There's sort of this grass is greener mentality. Mm -hmm. And you see it with people like you know, staying in a startup 12 months or 18 months and bouncing to the next thing, or you know, nothing wrong with like dating a bunch in your 20s and 30s. But the counterpoint to that is there is something about sticking with a few things because life is just very nonlinear. Yeah. I mean, any company, you look at the, the chart of a company, like sort of the emotional roller coaster, or you look at the growth chart or anything like that, it may look up and to the right with perspective mm -hmm. if you zoom out. But if you zoom in, you're going to see terrifying moments. You're going to see clear ups and downs. And that's true for everything. That model kind of scales up and down to an individual relationship, to an interest, to a friendship, a passion, to a company. And we sometimes don't give it enough time to sort of ride yeah. that roller coaster because doing that is what leads to the compound interest. And I think to your point too around your beliefs and knowing what you believe in, it feels like there's this very healthy balance that we want to strike between, you know, I probably have a few core beliefs that I really, really believe in. And you want to be like really right on those. Yeah. Uh, and you're never 100%, but you want to be 80, 90%. I mean, yeah. It's like the stuff that you like build your family on, you build your life on, you make decisions based upon. I think you also, on the other hand, really want to have, it's again, like a portfolio. You want to have a handful of maybes. Like this idea, I'm kind of a maybe. Oh yeah, oh, I, um, and I'm not saying you should question everything. Yeah. I mean, like this is, it's sort of the, I mean, it sounds like I'm saying the exact opposite, but like I very much question everything in my life. Yeah. But, but I think anchoring on, I've made hard choices. You, you make hard choices and you stick with them and you allow them to compound rather than constantly creating yeah. optionality in your life totally. about who you are particular. Yep. And like, you can even think about the lighter examples. Like, you know, I'm in my mid thirties. I've never learned to ski and I am never going to learn to yeah. ski. I, I have no desire to try something and to try to be so good. So it's not at just me. No, no, I, I have absolutely no desire. And it's so funny. My, my husband Kent makes fun of me because he's like, you know, it's actually really fun. And yeah. like, you're not too old to try, but it's, 
I have my hobbies. I have the yeah. things I like. I've doubled down on them. I'm yeah. trying to get better at those things. And I'm totally fine not having a new experience because I'm happy with the ones that I have. And I think that is shocking to people because we do live in this world of try everything, yeah. you know, experience everything. And yeah. for some people, maybe that's the right path. Sure. But for the boring people like me, I, I, I want to say it's okay to, to not diversify your life and to, and to double down on the things that you enjoy. That's awesome to hear because that's my <laughs> philosophy, but it's not a popular one. Yeah. Particularly my family, when we all go up to Tahoe, I'm like mm -hmm. the one person in the lodge hanging out. Yeah. But I like to go running every morning and I'm not going to risk that, which yeah. is like a key ritual in my life, yeah. um, to go try something that I may be 50-50 on at best. Yeah. Cool. So what's a problem you're concerned about that most people aren't? Or maybe a problem that people don't pay enough attention to? Yeah, I mean, I, I think definitely people are not paying attention to this. And it's, it's probably my biggest fear about where we are headed in the 21st century. So I'm very concerned about socioeconomic diversity and social mobility. Mm -hmm. And it gets a lot of lip service, but, but I'll give you a, an example of, of why, I, 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 why it's so important to me. And it's a personal example. So my mother graduated college in 1975. She was one of three women in her wow. class of 500 who got a business degree. She was first in her family to go to college. And what was strange about her in that class in particular was that she was one of three women. It was not that she was the daughter of a truck driver who never graduated mm. the eighth grade. And fast forward four decades later, I am graduating business school, her daughter, and I was in a class of over 40% women. And what would have been weird in that class was graduating next to someone who was the daughter or son of a truck driver. And so my fear hmm. is that, and, and it's wonderful, it is so important, I stand on the shoulders of all the women who come before me who have fought so hard for women's rights, but when you look at this 50-year journey of what's happened for women, it's been extraordinary gains and we need more of it. But if you look at the same 50 years and look at what has happened for social mobility in this country, I think I am the last of a generation where the granddaughter of a truck driver who never went to high school could be a venture capitalist. Yeah. And that to me, it, it is the motivating force of what I do. Mm. It is the thing that worries me most. And I worry that we are entering a world where if you are not born to the right people, if you are not, you know, it, it, that, that we're losing the meritocratic American dream that so accelerated my mother, so accelerated me. and. It's important for us to focus on a lot of different issues, but I do believe, and, and this goes back to my doubling down, I think you can have one issue in life. Yeah. And the one issue that matters most to me is social mobility, yep. socioeconomic diversity, making sure that people have the same opportunities that my mother had coming from her background. That's awesome. And I think one thing that's really interesting about that opinion is the tweet version of that would probably unleash the mob. You know what I'm saying? Because th because the surface level thing is like, oh, well, you're not being supportive enough of women. You're thinking more about socioeconomic diversity. But having a conversation about it, the, the real nuance is so much deeper because when people express concerns about we're losing the American dream, I think this is what they're actually talking about. Yeah. It's that the daughter or son of a truck driver, regardless of their gender, their race, anything like that, is not going to have the same opportunities that maybe we did in past generations. And I think, I, I agree, it's, it's extremely concerning. And I think that part of the challenge is you optimize what you measure. So if you're measuring the wrong things, or maybe you're over rotating on certain metrics and not others, if we're not looking at socioeconomic diversity and mobility, mm -hmm. we're not going to measure it. And it does kind of feel like we pay more lip service to some of it. 
And there's other metrics that just have more cachet culturally. And it's dry. I mean, it's driving the election. So I think it's mm-hmm. it, it's not that we're. I think America is worried about this. And and I'm not saying that other issues are important. You know, it's it's again, everyone's entitled to their one cause. Yeah. You know, and it's or many causes. If you're if you're diversified, your causes. But you know, I to me, I just worry that we'll look back in 50 years and we'll say how do we allow this to happen yeah and and how do we make it right and so i think we need to have more discussions about it that's awesome this is sort of the flip side of that question what's a problem most people are concerned about that you aren't or you think people pay too much attention to you know i'm such a tech optimist and this is like a very cliche answer for a technologist and yes technology has a lot of problems Throughout history, we've always panicked when uh, <laughs> when a new technology comes out, and you know how is it going to hurt us? How is it going to destroy us? I sort of have a like, people will figure it out. The kids are going to be all right. Yeah. You know, it's like even when I look at you know teenagers who are figuring out how to use different methods of communication, it's like kids figure things out much faster than adults. I am hopeful that all of these new technologies, yes, we have to be mindful. Yes, we need to have conversations about the downside risk, but I'm a tech optimist. <laughs> I think we've kind of got it flipped. I think we like to, and obviously in Hollywood, technology is often depicted as being evil or that's going to destroy civilization. But to me, the technology is not the issue. Technology is just a tool. Yeah. It can be used for good and for bad. I worry more about society and culture because I think if we get some of those things right, the underpinnings of that right, mm-hmm. the technological advances that we have will be positive because we will be amplifying better trends, better beliefs within society, better things that are happening. And so I think technology is a huge amplifying force. And so it feels like the key thing is just to, to help improve society so that technology is not steered in a, a bad direction. But that's just kind of my, my quick take there. Last question, what is the best piece of advice you've ever received? It's a good question because I, I, I get a lot of good advice. <laughs> um, but uh, my favorite poem, which my dad introduced to me when I was, was very young, is If by Rudyard Kipling. And there's this line in it uh, that has always stuck with me. I, I think about it all the time. And it's, if you can meet with triumph and disaster mm-hmm. and treat those two imposters just the same. And the whole point is what it means to, to and you know, at the end of the poem, it's you'll be a man, my son, what it means to, 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 become an adult, become human. And I think like it, it often comes up in the company building sense yeah. because if you are going into this very, very noble and difficult job of building a company, you are going to meet with triumph and disaster. Yeah. And the the important thing is to meet it stoically head on to, to treat those two imposters just the same, if you will. And I think about that a lot. I think that is such a noble way to live life and life is hard. And so it's, it's, it's important to, to always remember that line and, and, and really treat it with the enormity of those words. Yeah, life is filled with valleys and mountains and that's sort of what it is. A pastor actually randomly had this line that I thought was pretty clever. He was like, there's only fruit in the valley. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, yeah, it's great when life's going well and you're on the mountaintop. But if you kind of you kind of look back over your life, some of those some of those tough times that you worked through that mm-hmm. you thought like, gosh, is this ever going to get better? Is this is this going to lead somewhere good? You retroactively look back and you're like, oh, I picked up a lesson or an insight or a resilience or some sort of a, a belief in myself that I didn't have prior to that. And yeah. so I think that's kind of another spin on the if. A poem from Kipling, but that's also a personal tenet for me is to try to remember that that's the case. Mm-hmm. That actually, in those low moments, is where a lot of the 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 best parts of life actually will will kind of shoot out of that. Definitely. 
if folks, particularly early stage founders, want to get connected with you, what's the best way for them to do that? So I, I answer emails. I'm kboyle at generalcatalyst.com, and I'm on Twitter as well. So find me on Twitter. So get your I, cold emails yeah. and your awesome <laughs> tweets ready. Yeah, paying it forward. I, yeah, send the cold email. Well, this has been fantastic, super enjoyable conversation. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you. Uh, maybe we'll do it again in the future, but this has been one of my favorite episodes so far. Absolutely. Thanks so much. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. In episode six, we chatted with author and entrepreneur Kamal Ravikant about how your internal mentality can really shape your external reality. I think, you know what? There's something bigger than me going on, something bigger than this animal self. Whatever that is, you know, I don't think that the software that we run around in hardware is designed to actually figure the whole thing out, but it's been trying to figure this out forever and there is something there. So the way I look at it is how do I make it practical? How do I make this kind of knowledge practical? The one thing that helps us, it actually brings me back to more and more, okay, if this is the case, then the software that I'm running, the inside, affects <laughs> affects the whole thing. That's mm -hmm. the theory I have. And so like work on the inside, the outside gets better. And for episode number five, we had part two of our conversation with James Peshera, where we discussed network theory and the idea that each of us should focus on one problem that we uniquely can work towards solving. The network will solve so many of these things, just like the network has solved so many problems that we just falsely thought were going to be. If you go and just look up a time cover story from 1984, 1983, 1982, do this as an exercise for 20 minutes. The existential threats that they would put on the cover, none of them are problems anymore. None of them are problems anymore. Whenever I'd mention this, people, they're like, no, but we need to take action on the environment today. It's like, well, I want to do my part, but I'm not a really educated environmentalist. My focus is an increasing courage around me for creation. And maybe I can be helpful in encouraging someone with an entrepreneurial idea towards environmentalism, but I'm not going to be the person that figures out how to desalinate water or that figures out you know, uh, how to get us off of uh, fossil fuels. A quick housekeeping note, we just launched a new website for the podcast at paradoxpodcast.co, which will have all episodes and everything you need to know about the podcast. If you enter your email address and subscribe, you'll get new episodes sent directly to your inbox one to two days early. And you can always drop us a line on the contact form. We read every single message and really value constructive feedback. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow us on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts and at Mr. Alex Kahn. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself.